0: Today we're going to be in Genesis 3.15. Today, with Christmas two days away, we're going to talk about the meaning of Christmas and really what it has become in our society. Jesus is the reason for the season, I'm sure you've heard. But why does that even have to be said? And the answer is because it's become everything else except for the Jesus being the reason for the season. I want to take just a, a humorous look about what we think about, what comes to our mind during this season. I'm sure you can fill in a lot of the blanks, but number one, tis the season to hang icicles from the roof gutters. Now, you know, you know how many people break bones falling off ladders trying to do that? <laughs> I remember I tried a few years back. My wife really wanted the icicles, right? String them together and put them up. Except my roof is high, and I'm not really a fan of heights. <laughs> And I have this 30-foot telescoping aluminum ladder that I had to have her hold while I would go up the ladder and try to put the clips on the gutters. And it was a little difficult. And it got to the point that every, every few feet, I would have to get down, move the ladder, go back up, put another clip on, get down. And after a while, I just, it just was taking too long. So towards the end, I had one foot on the rung, the other foot kind of hanging off, and one hand holding the gutter and just saying, one more clip, one more clip. So I scared her so much that she never asked me to do it again. As a matter of fact, when I went to plug it in, the the middle section didn't light up, but the two ends did. I don't know how that happened. And for some reason, it always works when you put them together in the living room. Why is that? You you know what I'm talking about. Two, tis the season to shop for that someone special who has everything. You don't know what to get him or her, so you end up getting them a gift certificate. (laughs) Thank God for gift certificates. Tis the season to receive a gift that you may not like, but you put on a polite face anyway and pretend you love it. When I was a kid, you know, I wanted either money or toys, and my grandparents always got me clothes. And I don't know why if my parents taught me to say it, but I just remember a lot of times opening up the package and then going, oh, a sweater, just what I always wanted. Or four, then there's that gift that you get and repackage and give it to someone else. Like, nobody's ever done that, right? My grandmother was famous for doing that. And no less, she did it in the immediate family. So <laughs> so somebody would open a gift, and we'd look at that and go, that looks familiar. Shh, don't say anything. Just let it be. Or, tis the season to sometimes put on a show, replete with decorations and preparations, but the truth is, your life is in crisis. Or you're frazzled this time of year. This time of the year is oftentimes a reality check. In the police department, you know, uh, we've already had a few fatal overdoses and fatal car wrecks. The truth is, this time of the year, DWIs are up, as well as suicides, drug addiction, hunger, stress, loneliness, scams, (coughs) domestic violence, snowstorms. I actually have to earn my money this time of the year. And some may say, boy, this is a bummer. I came to hear a cheery Christmas message, not this. But when you cut away the facade of everything is just fine, you find that people are flawed and broken everywhere you go. But here's the good news. A babe was born in the manger 2,000 years ago to a poor family, and that babe grew up to change the face of history forever as we know it by giving mankind hope. And that hope that was initially lost when we as a people, as God's creation, decided to rebel against him and we thought we could make it on our own. This is why Jesus is the reason for the season. So we put a lot of care into things this time of year, but is it about Jesus? You know, God also put a lot of care into many things uh, a long time ago, and thank God it was all about Jesus. Last year we went through the uh, birth of Christ and uh, all the events that had subsequently chronologically. This year I want to go into depth a little bit about what happened prior to him coming here. Let's talk about the care that he put into saving our souls. The big story, really, is all the preparation that went into the events prior to his birth in the manger. You see, the babe in the manger is not the beginning of the story. A lot more happened prior to the babe being in that manger. So last Sunday, I talked a little bit about some good prophecy. And today, I just want to go uh, to some other prophecies that maybe we didn't hit that speak about the events that preceded the babe in the manger. And just for those of you who may not know, may be new here, what is prophecy? Prophecy is God's seal of authenticity. It's when God is the only holy book here that God puts things in there thousands of years ago, and he says, watch, this will come to pass. And prophecies get fulfilled in the scripture. Even in our lifetime, many prophecies are being fulfilled. And that just shows and proves that God's word is true because he can see outside of the time domain. The first one I want to hit is Genesis three fifteen, the first book of the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament, Genesis three fifteen. Now in Genesis, the account is the history of creation dictated to Moses by God Himself about eighteen hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus. In this particular scripture here, the man, the woman. The serpent and Satan all received their punishment after collective rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. I'll just read the one scripture. God says, and I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God faced the dilemma because sin came to mankind via this woman, Eve, which required total annihilation of the human race. But also, God had a solution, as he always does. And we see that in our lives. Whenever we have a dilemma, we we look up to God and we pray, because he's the one who has the solutions to all of our dilemmas. And one of the biggest dilemmas of, of the creation and the history of man, God solved. The redemption also came to mankind via a different woman, the seed of a woman, in the form of Mary's miraculous pregnancy. Furthermore, he says the bruising of the heel, or the seat of the woman's heel. What this means is there was a minor victory against the Son of God at his death on the cross. But conversely, and this is all about two sides of the same coin, but conversely, the bruising of the head was the major victory against the bondage of sin and the hopeless eternity at that same cross. So at the cross, the Son of God's heel was bruised. But at the, at the cross, the the head of the seed of the serpent in a picture of Satan was also destroyed because Jesus died for our sin, taking away that, that, uh, that, that bondage to sin that Satan had over mankind for so long. And then I want to turn to Galatians 4, starting with verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. It was just the right time. And there's timing. There's a lot about timing, especially even in the world we live in. If you look at simple things, if you're waiting for fruit to ripen, if you eat the fruit too soon, it doesn't really taste that good. If you wait too long and it gets mushy, it's, it's no good. It's kind of spoiled. So timing is very important. When you're having to ch- have, try to have a child, ha- try to have a baby, timing with cycles. You have to look at, at, at fertility cycles. Even timing for the perfect Perfectly cooked meal. My wife is a great cook, and me, you know, I pretty much will eat anything, although that doesn't sound good. Uh, she's really a good cook, but I know before I met her, I would eat anything, but forget that. Thank God she's not here. But the point I'm trying to make is that she just knows the exact timing of a, of a, a well cooked meal. And oftentimes I'll just put my hand in the pot or try to grab something. I usually get my hand slapped a lot, and she chases me out of the kitchen. But my wife knows the right timing for the perfectly cooked meal. So we see timing as a lot. It has a lot to do with our lives, our everyday lives. But we see that the most important event in human history was time just perfect for salvation to come to mankind. And in this scripture, we see that almost two millennia prior to the babe in the manger, the preparation for redemption of mankind's sin was in the works. Okay, I want you to turn to Numbers 24. Okay, It's the fourth book. From the beginning, Numbers 24, verse 17. You're really going to like this. This is an obscure scripture that has so much meaning in it. Verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of tumult. And Edom shall be a possession; Seir also, his enemy, shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion, and destroy the remains of the city. Now, in context, this is the fourth prophecy of the prophet Balaam to King Balak of Moab. And this is while the children of Israel were still outside the promised land and being harassed by the pagan nations. This is the background. The book of Numbers was also penned by Moses around the same time as Genesis, 1800 B.C. Now, let me give you the scope of a thousand years, just to give you the scope so you understand. A hundred years ago, to my knowledge, looking out here, none of us were here. None of us were born a hundred years ago. Three hundred years ago, our nation, as we know it, did not exist. A thousand, eighteen hundred years ago, what did the landscape right here look like? Probably completely barren. So to give you the scope of 1,800 years, changes in civilizations, changes in languages, changes in technologies, that's a big number. And for God to predict things so accurately that long ago is mind-blowing with such detail. Again, Moab and Edom are mentioned here. They basically were some of the enemies of the children of Israel, but it's also modern-day Jordan. And as often is the case with prophecy, you see the future, but different futures. In other words, here... Uh, The prophecy at the time of Balaam, looking forward, is roughly 1,800 years into the future. But we also see part of the same prophecy is looking forward to 4,000 years in the future, which is actually somewhat in front of us that we haven't seen yet. And let me explain. Most, if not all, prophecy look to the redemption of Israel by her Messiah, and we see that here. The last two lines of verse 17, Battering the brow of Moab and destroying the sons of tumult along with verses 18 and 19, are a future fulfillment in our future, when Jesus returns to rule. The first four lines indicate prophetic vision of the Messiah, and he says, I see him, but not now. So Balaam is prophesying about Jesus' birth, Jesus coming, but he's saying, but not now. It's something that we look around we have no idea because we can't see any of this fulfillment. It's, It's a long time in the future. Okay. What I really want to focus on here is the word star in Hebrew. The word star is kokob. Now, that word is significant because it has a double meaning. Follow this. This is exciting. Number one, kokob literally means a star, as in what the wise men saw to draw them to the place where Jesus was. Now, kokob can also mean figuratively a prince in Hebrew. As what the star led the men to be drawn to, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Isn't that amazing, that double meaning in that one word? Now, why is that that so significant? And how do we even know that this is messianic? People may say, well, Joe, maybe you're reading into this. No. The, the ancient rabbis had a list of messianic prophecies from the Old Testament that they said the Messiah will fulfill these. What's very interesting is that pure secular history talks about a man named Bar Kokob or Bar Kokhba, depending on how his name is, is translated. His name literally meant he named himself as Bar, meaning son, of the star. I, I am the son of the star. A man rose up at around 132 A.D. and he led a lot of Jewish people away. Now, remember, this is after Jesus' ascension. Uh, resurrection and ascension many years later this man rose up and led this great rebellion against rome and he said i am the son of the star pointing to this scripture i am fulfilling this well history tells us that that rebellion didn't last long the romans put them down and and they put them down very hard and this man was killed uh, and his his followers scattered does anybody know of any Kokob followers today no because the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered Now, in Jesus' case, he rose from the dead. A lot of the Jewish Christians would not follow the the revolt, and this caused a rift between the Jewish Christians and the purely Jewish people during this revolt. But they knew enough, our Messiah rose from the dead. We're not following you. So it's a very interesting point here. And also, a lot of study has been done on this star that the Magoi, in the Greek, followed from the east. I want to read a scripture to you, Matthew 2, 1-2, that you'll be familiar with. Just two verses. Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or the Magoi, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, this is amazing because there's been a lot of good research done on this star. Well, you know, people today say, well, that's kind of a fairy tale. It's funny, if if enough time goes by, people will look at something that's factual and say, ah, maybe it didn't happen. Unfortunately, some teachers of the Bible are starting to say that too, which is pretty sad. to, To kind of fall in harmony with the world's view. To make Christianity on par with everything else. And take the miracles out of it. But check this out, this star. There's a man named Grant Matthews, who's an astrophysicist and cosmologist at Notre Dame. And in his studies, he found that there's good evidence around 4 BC that documented a supernova, Aquila, that this was that star. Pretty amazing. Now, a supernova, I'm going to have to explain it because it's not for you metalheads. It's not a 75 Chevy with a nitrous oxide system in it. A supernova, okay, is a stellar explosion that causes a burst of radiation, It creates such a brightness that it has the ability to temporarily outshine the host galaxy. Isn't that amazing? So every star kind of is the same in in the galaxy, and when when the star explodes and there's a supernova for a certain amount of time, that's the brightest thing in that whole galaxy. Pretty interesting stuff. There's also good research that's been backed up by detailed Chinese and Korean astronomy records. You see, I love when good science backs up the Bible. As people of faith, we don't, have to just, we don't have blind faith. We don't just grope around in the dark and say, well, it's just there because we believe. No, First Peter 3.15 says to have an answer, a polygene, a courtroom-style defense and testimony for why you believe what you believe. We're thinking people. God gave us this incredible brain. We should be thinking about uh, you know, our faith and not just blindly accepting it. That's why I love to use science to back up the scripture. So what you see in this scripture is that almost two millennia prior to the Messiah, while the children of Israel were being harassed by their enemies, and that's all they could focus on, God was preparing to defeat mankind's biggest enemy, unbeknownst to them, sin and resultant death, and that was in the form of the Messiah, who was the Son of God. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, one scripture, often quoted around this time of the year. Isaiah 7.14 Again, another messianic prophecy. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, that means with us is God. Now, the fulfillment in Luke 1, starting in verse 26, For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said something very curious. She said, I do not know a man to the angel. Well, that doesn't make any sense. She knew plenty of men and she certainly knew Joseph who she was betrothed to. What that means, biblical speaking, is she didn't know a man intimately enough to be able to have a child, okay? So there's a, a, a sexual knowledge in that, I do not know a man. And the word for what Mary was in the Hebrew is Alma. Now, that word was translated in the Septuagint to He parthenos, which means behold the unmarried virgin in, in Greek. It's pretty amazing. So even 700 years prior to Mary's birth, God was speaking about a miraculous birth of the Son of God through this humble woman. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2. Some of these we touched on last Sunday, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper into detail. Prophet Micah says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, or alternately translated, from eternity. This was fulfilled in Luke too. I know I'm getting, kind of getting you go, going back and forth for a little bit, but that's okay because you see hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, prophecies that were made, and then you see in the first century, they all lined up perfectly so that they can be fulfilled. So go back to Luke or forward to Luke 2, starting with verse 1. Luke says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And what we talked about when we studied the book of Luke was that the Roman census, remember, Mary and Joseph were, you know, Galileans. They lived up there in the north country. And it was a pretty good distance down to the Jerusalem area. But God used, allowed the Roman census to pull them out of that area to be registered because Joseph was from the line of Judah. Okay, he was, he had to go to Jerusalem uh, to i mean from the line of david he had to go to jerusalem to be registered So he pulled them from the roman census out of the area of the north country down to the judean area So that they could be registered pretty amazing stuff So the hebrew prophet micah 700 years prior to jesus's incarnation Explains these things to us number one that the messiah existed before time began the last verse He says he was from everlasting or from eternity So the son of God, who always existed, came down in the form of a baby, in the form of a man, and was born a miraculous birth, um, and he interjected himself into human history. And this was uh, explained 700 years prior to his actual birth. And the second thing is, again, that I said last Sunday, that the Messiah would be born in a little suburb, uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, not to be confused with Bethlehem from Zebulun, which is from the north country, narrowing narrowing down the odds of who the Messiah could be. Further narrowing down the odds was Herod's edict to kill all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and in all its districts. So, if you would turn with me to Matthew 2, starting with verse 16. Matthew 2, 16, Three verses. He says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and he quotes Jeremiah here, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they were no more. So here, Matthew is explaining what Herod did to these children, and Herod was such an evil man, Herod the Great, that I think the the saying went, it was safer to be Herod's dog than it was to be in his family, because he murdered a lot of people in his family. He was a sick man. He was paranoid. And for him to kill a bunch of babies that he thought might have uh, threatened his position was not an uncommon thing and this Jeremiah 31 was written 600 years prior to the birth of Jesus Th- these numbers are, are are amazing numbers okay amazing numbers the romans didn't w- really were not anything 600 years prior to the birth of Jesus okay genesis 49:10 go back to the first book of the bible genesis 49 Now, in context, this is the portion of Scripture where Jacob, okay, the patriarch Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and then his son Jacob, he had 12 sons, and they started the tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel grew up, and they had families, and they ended ended up populating the promised land. Now, Jacob is getting old in age, and he's prophesying about the future of his sons and about the future of their people. So, Jacob 49.10 says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, speaking about his son Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shalom comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. Okay, you see, what happens here is uh, Jacob is spelling out a political problem, and again, probably Judah heard this and, you know, didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, a lot of these prophecies, when these men of God and and, and these women heard this, they they just kept it in their heart or they wrote it down, but uh, it was so obscure and so far in the future that they really didn't even figure it out Im- themselves. And we see that in the New Testament, that the prophets didn't have all the puzzle pieces. They only had their piece and couldn't put the picture together in their time frame. But we can in our time frame, okay? So what happens is... Uh, What he's spelling out here is a political problem between the Jews and their Roman oppressors for the first time, this particular political problem, in almost 600 years of total domination of the Jews. And it speaks about the Messiah to come, kind of interjected in that. Now, let me explain myself. From the time of the Babylonian domination from 586 B.C. to the first century Roman domination, Babylonians, uh, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then ultimately the Romans, the, the Jews always retained this sceptership, okay? It's, it's right here. It, says, it talks about the scepter departing from Judah. Well, the Judah always had the scepter. What is the scepter? The scepter is physically known as it was a tribal staff, but it was also known as the ability for their own people to continue the administration, day-to-day operations, maintain their police force, um, uh, carry out court cases, capital punishment, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was an administrative kind of thing also. Now... What happened in the 1st century was there was a great friction between one of Herod the Great's sons, uh, Herod Archelaus and the Jews. And they were subsequently Herod Archelaus was removed from ruling over the Jews and for the first time a Roman procurator was put into that position, Capanius. Now what does that mean? <laughs> I know I got to explain myself here. What happened was the Jews were always allowed to pretty much run themselves. But there was such a friction between one of Herod's sons and the Jews that they removed this Herod, Archelaus, put in a Roman procurator, Capanius, and there was a succession of Roman procurators until Pontius Pilate. Okay? And what happened was they said, no more. Now the Romans will run you directly. Sort of like when um, the Russians came in after World War II uh, and, and took, took part of Germany, and they ended up running Germany. And then eventually they gave the sceptership back to Germany and let the Eastern uh, Germans run themselves. That was kind of considered that whole sceptership. So what's significant here is that Caesar Augustus, the emperor, grew very weary of the Jews and took away their right of self-governing. Hence, the Jews had to go before Pontius Pilate for permission to kill Jesus. So we see that the sceptership was removed in the time of Christ. Now, Shiloh, the name Shiloh here, was another name for the Messiah, Jesus, who came during this time period. Again, this is a time-sensitive prophecy that nobody today or in the last 2,000 years could fulfill. That situation came and went in the window of time, and it can't be repeated. Okay, one one more, Um, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is another scripture often quoted around the time of Christmas. Two verses, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Again, 700 years prior to Jesus coming to the earth. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, what you see is a progression from... Oh, let, me just, let me just fill that, that one up. Um, oh, no, we, did, we already uh, spoke about the fulfillment. What you see is the progression from the babe in the manger all the way to the government being on his shoulders and no end to the peace. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened. It hasn't even happened in our lifetime. This is a future fulfillment. So 700 years prior to Jesus coming to the earth was prophesied to the first century and then prophesied several thousand years later in the future of our time period. So this is a very wide-reaching prophecy about uh, Jesus's role. And a few things that you see here is that um, future fulfillments about the government being on his shoulders and a rule, but also his name will be called, or in other words, he will be known as wonderful. Jesus, of course, is wonderful. Counselor, as the word of God, our best counsel comes from the word of God. Uh, mighty God, El Gibor, there's deity there. Uh, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. So what you see is this Messiah, the old, the ancient Jews know, the ancient rabbis knew that when this Messiah comes, he's not going to be a man. He's going to be something more special. Okay, so you see that prophecy happening. And then um, one more. I know I said that, but this is literally one more. Daniel 9:25. Uh, Daniel 9:25. Now, this one goes um, not necessarily to his birth, but I thought it's so fascinating that I, I would explain it. Daniel 9.25, written 500 years prior to Jesus' incarnation. okay, it says this, Know therefore and understand, the angel speaking to Daniel, that going from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. This is a picture of hope. Now, this prophecy, or this book of Daniel, is so prophetic, it's so filled with future fulfillments that are so exact, that many people critical of the Bible said, there's no way that could have been written before the first century. It's too accurate. It's a fraud. Somebody must have wrote it afterwards. Well, for those of you who were Bible students, The Dead Sea Scrolls, circa 1st century uh, and 2nd century B.C., and the Septuagint, 2nd and 3rd century B.C., all contain Daniel in its original form, and they agree with each other, as well as many Hebrew texts. So that kind of kills the skeptic's view about Daniel being written afterwards. And what this spells out is no fourth. The angel was giving uh, Daniel hope about his people, Okay? They, were under, uh, they were under the Persian domination. Uh, you know, he, they, the Bible said God wanted them to come out of captivity to rebuild Jerusalem. So the angel is kind of giving Daniel encouragement about the future of his people. And what it spells out here is that there was a decree by the Persian ruler, and this is all secular history you could follow, uh, Artaxerxes Longimanus in uh, January, uh, January, February, March 14, 445 B.C., 173,880 days, you could count the time, the 70 weeks from from the, the decree to rebuild Jeru- Jerusalem to the time of Messiah the Prince in 4632 AD, where Jesus presented himself triumphantly as the Messiah okay, to the people of Jerusalem. There's actually a time span that shows that this scripture, before it even happened, spelt out to the day from the decree of the Persians, To Messiah presenting himself in the triumphal entry, 173,880 days, taking the Babylonian calendar into account. Now, again, if you let that sink in, some of you looking at me like, "What? Say that again." If you let that sink in, it's a fascinating scripture that tells the the amazing uh, ability of God to predict the future. Okay. Now, as you can see, I've only given you about seven of these magnificent prophecies, and the Bible has well over 300 of uh, that were fulfilled. And you can see that somebody today cannot claim to be the Messiah because these time periods have literally come and gone. So the question is, do you see how much preparation went into the events even prior to the babe lying in the manger? A lot of preparation went into sending the eternally existent Son of God into the world. To really blow your mind, there's actually a smatter of what uh, the Bible uh, scholars call Christophanies. In other words, before Jesus' birth you know, in, in the manger appearances of the son of god jesus himself prior to the first century appearing in the old testament in a more glorified form now that really can blow your mind but that's a subject for another time so the question is why do we need a savior why why do we celebrate this time of year why is it so important that jesus came well just like there's laws in the in the physical universe there's also spiritual laws and these are the four spiritual laws number one god loves you john 3:16, john 10:10. 10, 10, John 17, as well as many others, tell us that God loves us. He created us. The care he puts into the intricacies of our body, the human cell, the human hair, the DNA code, he loves us. He put a lot of care into us. Two, man is sinful. That's a problem. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. The Bible says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and there are none righteous, no, not one, not one that seeks after God. Three, Jesus is the bridge over that hopeless, separating chasm that keeps mankind and God apart. Romans 5.8 and John 14.6. And the fourth spiritual law is we must choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior for our sins to be blotted out and be accepted by God into heaven. John 1.12 tells us this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were, not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why do we need a Savior? will just read to you a few things from current events to kind of really seal this up here. All you have to do is take a few days out of the news, your local news, and see what's going on in the world. In New Jersey, we had some two escaped inmates. They, they tunneled through a hole in the cinder block and got out. Uh, millionaire couple guilty in modern-day slavery case. Snowstorm pounds the Great Lakes. Teacher sex scandals all over the place. Uh, Cops say that parents tried to sell their baby for $30 in a parking lot. Principal busted in child porn case. Women were not only robbed, but they were burned to death. Suicide is on the rise among middle-aged Americans. In Phoenix, three were found dead of a homicide. And then you have your mall shootings, and then you have your campus shootings. Now you have our church shootings. And this is what's going on in the world. If you think you're okay because you say, you know what, I could, I could see that, Pastor Joe, and you read that, but I, I don't do any of those things. Well, let me tell you what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you think about, and you're, and you're in the, uh, the supermarket or whatever, and you think about stealing something, but you, you don't want to do it because you don't want to get caught. You're a thief. You've already considered, you've already, uh, considered that, that stealing in your heart. Jesus said, if, if you look at another uh, person who's not your spouse and you lust after that person, you're an adulterer. You've already done it. If you have something against another Christian and you really don't like that person, uh, you're you're a murderer, the Bible says. So we're doomed. Now, again, it sounds awful. I mean, people are saying, gee, I I came here for a nice Christmas message. Well, it's not awful, but it's sobering. Here's your Christmas cheer. It's not about decorations. It's not about Santa, shopping, or seeing relatives. It's about 2,000 years ago. A babe was in the manger. And that babe that was in the manger gave us hope. That babe grew up to be a sinless person, the only person in human history that was sinless. That person taught us the oracles of God. He was considered the word of God. That person taught us how to live and how to be close to God. Most importantly, that person allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. That person allowed us to believe in him. And to take the punishment, to take the sins of the world on him so that we wouldn't have to. That person declares us righteous. We stand before God in a righteous way because of that person who shed their blood on the cross. That person said, my seal of authenticity is I'm going to die. I'm going to be laid in a tomb and three days I will rise again. And that happened. Appeared to many over a period of 40 days. That person ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God again to come and judge the living and the dead. That's the Christmas message, and that's why we celebrate and rejoice. Let's pray.